Today, I'll be reading Mark 2, verses 1 through 12. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man, carried by four of them. Since they could not get to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it, and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there, thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, Why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to the paralyzed man, Your sins are forgiven, or say, Get up, take your mat, and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I'll tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. Well, this is fun. I want to say just a minute about this strong senior class that your blessing and our church doesn't lose them because of course we send them off to other churches some of them get to stay here with us but many of you know that are either worshiping with us online or that are here that on march 31st of this year their uh, youth pastor um, took a different job and moved away after four and a half years uh, here with us and I called the, some of the seniors the four horsemen. They came into me and say, we're still having our retreat in April, right, Pastor Mike? And I said, sure, as long as you get three adults, males, and three adult females to spend overnight. And I said, then we have to plan it. And they said, oh, no, here's what we're doing. And they showed it to me. It was a blessing. And they also have a big worship night coming up here on uh, June 12th. You're invited to it. And I thought... Maybe I'd get out of preaching at an outside event, but they said, no, we're still doing it. So what a great class of, of, of seniors. And so I say this on their behalf and on behalf of the church. Um, on this Senior Sunday, I, I make an unapologetic invitation to you to the work of making young disciples. More than 90% of the people in the world that come to know Jesus Christ and claim him as their savior, do so before their 21st birthday. Many before they graduate from high school. These young people, doesn't matter if they're little bitties or if they're high school students, need adults who have made their decision to follow Christ and to live out his way in their life to teach, guide, shape, and model for them. The mission of the church is to make disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. And I say this again without apologies. You are all necessary to our disciple-making work. Now, COVID, we know about COVID. COVID changed some habits, including um, inviting into not only the church world, but other places, the reluctance to serve. I understand that. And I also understand that COVID did not stop our children from growing. They continue to grow, and children will grow one way or another. And it is the responsibility of the church to train them up in Christ. So again, unapologetically, and in fact, I forcefully ask you to pray to the Lord of the harvest for workers and 
to pray if you're one of them. That if you're one that needs to step into a role that maybe you've never been before in our Pathfinders Children's Ministry. Or maybe you're ready to be a confirmation small group leader. Or maybe you're ready to be one of our Wednesday night um, 412 leaders. All of those things. And if you want to, don't make it hard. Just write your name on the bottom of the sheet that you were handed as you came in and say, call me to lead our children. Because we're not going to relent in this work. And the harvest needs more laborers. And maybe you're one of them. So I'm going to ask you to pray right now. Because you you you've seen two-thirds of the group that we're going to have today. And the power that is in them by God's strong hand and by the teaching example of this church. There's more, there's more opportunity. Let's pray for that. Lord, I pray for the remission of our reluctance and for our willingness to direct young men, women, children, boys and girls by the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, some of us don't even know what to teach and we're fortunate in that because the church is equipped with curriculum. It's equipped with a staff that can guide and shape leaders as well, that can give them all the assets they need because the biggest asset they need is a heart for you and a willingness to lead these children and these adults to be like the ones we've already blessed and the ones we're going to bless in a few minutes. So Lord, I pray for the church. I pray for workers for the harvest field of making new disciples for Jesus Christ in the leading of the young here in our community. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So do you remember... The Great Dessert Crisis of 1988. I remember it very well. I was the pastor at Cedar Edge Community United Methodist Church in far western Colorado. And we were getting ready for the biggest fundraiser of our year, the annual lasagna dinner. And I heard ruminations, noise coming up from the kitchen where, as they called themselves, the ladies of the skillet were having a spirited argument. You see, controversy was developing in the basement kitchen as we planned for the lasagna dinner. Because Marge, who was quite a force in the United Methodist Women, said we need to have pies for dessert. Sally, on the other hand, was a strong supporter of the cake. I don't know if she was part of Duncan Hines or Betty Crocker's family or not, but she steadfastly believed that at the annual lasagna dinner, cake not pie, should be served. This argument went on. And of all things, if you can believe it, as a 27-year-old or however-year-old pastor I was, this actually came to the church council. The great dessert controversy of 1988 needed to be solved by the church council. Now, what the United Methodist women forgot to count on was there'd be lots of men at the church council. And after a few spirited moments, chairperson Bill Briscoe simply stood up and said, we cannot decide between pie and cake. It will be cookies. <laughs> and there were. The great dessert crisis was solved. The controversy over. Or was it? In 1989, as the dinner began to be formed, again I heard controversy stirring in the kitchen. And I walked down, and the question was, 
could these be cookies? Could these cookies be made into bars? <laughs> Controversy is indigenous to the human experience, isn't it? I mean, it doesn't matter if you're talking about a school or a sports league or a neighborhood covenant that says you can have a bush here and not here. Difference of perspective always brings controversy, or at least discussion. And different perspectives of Jesus, as we've seen throughout the history of the church, can generate controversy as well. This is the story and the truth that is the story of Mark chapter 2. Jesus' ministry to us is controversial. Because we pick up the action, we see two things here. Jesus' actions can only provide one of two possibilities. Either the kingdom of God has come in the person of Jesus and Nazareth, or Jesus is a blasphemer. The scribes contend from their perspective, and this is where the controversy is launched, that Jesus is a blasphemer. He is insulting God by the very things he is doing and saying, and, incidentally, blasphemy in the Jewish way, was a capital offense because the one who was blaspheming was usurping God's authority. He was taking God's authority by forgiving sins. Now, on the other hand, were those who came to be healed. And what they believed and what they saw was that all the prophecies of Israel, all the prophecies of Elijah and Jeremiah and Malachi and, and uh, Isaiah and, and Hosea, and all the prophets were coming true in this one person. This is the King of kings, the Lord of lords. This is Jesus, our Savior. That is the belief of a Christian. Jesus does in that home at Capernaum in Galilee what the law cannot do, which is deal with the root of humanity's greatest problem. See, he's dealing with the root of the problem. And what is the root of the problem according to Jesus? separation from God. Human beings have come, and they have allowed themselves to be separated from God. The law deals with sin. It tells you what to do and what not to do, and it tells you how to earn the remission of sins, and the law deals with illness. It tells you if you're ill in a certain way, what to do, what prayers to say, how to do them, but it does not deal with them together. Jesus' actions here in Mark chapter 2 indicate that the effects of sin have taken this man far from God, and he needs the forgiveness that also heals. The ancient church studied these texts, much as we are today, and I think it's important for us, whether we're near or far, to oftentimes look at what the ancients said about the very scriptures that we're looking at. And, and so we're going to take uh, two or three times throughout this talk a look at what the ancients said centuries prior to us. Irenaeus, a first century a first century Christian wrote this, if Christ forgives, he must truly be God, for no one can forgive sins but God. Because this is what we know. Forgiveness is experienced. It's something that you experience. It is something that you receive. It's not simply an incantation. It's not simply some words or an idea. When a person receives forgiveness, and I pray that all of us in here have at sometimes, it is not inappropriate for them to say, we feel forgiven, or I feel forgiven. Not only did I hear forgiveness, but I feel it head to toe. And as Jesus forgives sins, and he does, those near him understand that when they feel the forgiveness he is uh, ushering them, the claim is he is God. Not a representative of God, 
not some sort of priest or pastor, but that he himself is God. And therein lies the heart of the kerfluffle that he has with the scribes. Jesus knows the hearts of people. He knows what's going on even inside us. And so the true contrast in, in the story, and, and, and hear this, the true contrast in the story is between the paralytic and his friends and the scribes. This is where it is. See, the paralytic was pronounced forgiven, healed, picked up his mat, walked away. The scribes, by Jesus, were pronounced hard-hearted. Now dive into this story a little bit. Don't miss the words that are in there. Neither one of these groups had an external conversation for Jesus. Nothing was said directly to Jesus about the healing one way or another. The paralytic and his friends, as far as we know, their conversation is not recorded anywhere in Scripture. The scribes that, that Jesus, quote, hears are not talking to him. They're not even close to him. They're not even facing him. But he hears their thoughts and addresses them. What they're pushing is that the idea of forgiveness is outside the scope of the law. And what they're saying about Jesus is that he's taking sin too lightly. And this is unacceptable to them. Forgiveness for them was associated with ritualistic cleaning. Now some of us here today, uh, prior service and now, ha have been to the Wailing Wall. And right beside the Wailing Wall at the, at, at the foot of Mount Moriah, the, where the Temple of Solomon was, there is a large pond, uh, uh, pool, sorry, it's not a pond, a pool where people, the, the, the Jews, will ritualistically clean themselves. <clears throat> and what they're cleaning off themselves is their sins. So, so the forgiveness of sins for them is two things. One, it's ritualistic, and, and oftentimes there's an incantation, some words said with it, and it's an offering. It's a penance. You, you pay for your sins to be forgiven. In early days, it was sacrificial, um, you know, lambs and all that sort of thing. And in more recent days, of course, um, uh, currency. What Jesus says is so foreign to their understanding. What Jesus is saying here is that the man's malady, the man's illness, is sufficient punishment for his sins. Whatever his sins were, he's been punished enough by this that is upon him. So Jesus came to resolve the problem of sin that plagues humanity. This is humanity's largest problem. It is the major aspect of Jesus' work, and that is the work of forgiveness. Miss this not. He taught it. I mean, even in the Lord's Prayer that we, we, we say so often in our services, it tells us, if you look at Matthew 6, Luke 10, Jesus literally, he doesn't, he doesn't like implicate this. He literally says, if you don't forgive sins, you won't be forgiven. Don't miss that part. And he teaches many times that one of our roles is to forgive others of their sins. Jesus came to forgive our sins. He taught it. He bestowed it, like we see in this story. He offered it to us. And I'll tell you what, he died for it. You can ask any student that's ever been to confirmation or Sunday school. Uh, you should be able to ask yourself this. When, when, when a Methodist Christian is asked the, this question, why did Jesus die? Most of us will say, to save us from our sins. Which is to say two things. One, we're sinful. Two, we need salvation. And Jesus provides that. 
Forgiveness is his greatest and most major work. Sin has been the most troubling thing for Israel's whole history. As soon as they got through the lake, as soon as the Passover happened and they were, all their lives were spared, two million people's lives were spared, they walked through the Red Sea, the sea opened for them by God's strong hand. They got in there. Moses, Moses went up onto the Mount Sinai. He was getting the Ten Commandments. And because he was gone a few days, the people down and below says, well, we don't know what happened to him. We need to build the God that brought us out of Egypt. Now they knew that they, they had seen God in the pillar of smoke and fire and they built a golden calf. They, and you just follow all of history of Israel and it's like that you, you go from the golden calf to, to David and Bathsheba to Jehu who kills uh, all of the family of Ahab has 70 skulls piled up here 70 skulls piled up here the, their whole history is checkered with sin and it's troubled them throughout and by the way not just the Jews right we're Americans one of America's biggest problems is broken-minded sinfulness, right? We saw how uh, a broken mind went into a grocery store in Buffalo and killed people just because of the pigment of their skin. We saw how a person went into a church just last Sunday and, and killed people because of where they're from. I just got to tell you this. You know, racism never worked, so let's work through that. It's one of the great sins of humanity today. It's, it's never helped anyone's. And even though our minds are not broken like those two that I point to in those simplistic um, current examples, our minds still compile voluminous lists of personal and private violations of God's law. And these can only be resolved by Jesus. St. Augustine, who lived 800 years ago, wrote, One need not be paralyzed bodily to be paralyzed inwardly. I fear that that is where many of us live today, with some inward paralyzations. Forgiveness and healing belong together because the brokenhearted are indeed paralyzed. Those that are trapped in sin are indeed paralyzed. I had a friend in the town I lived in previously, and it took me several years of knowing him to realize he was even married. I saw him wear a wedding ring and stuff like that, but one day I asked him, I said, you know, are you, are you divorced? He said, no, I'm married. And then he went on to tell me about his wife, who had been so ravaged with sinfulness when she was an, a young adult that she'd become paralyzed societally, and she hadn't left her house for 20 years. And far as I know, still hasn't. Even though I converse with her, me just on the front step, her, she couldn't break that, the, the, how sin had paralyzed her. And, and I, uh, in the middle of my seminary, I was at the uh, Mental Health Institute in Cherokee. I, I got out at night, though, Avery. I didn't, I didn't stay there. I was an intern. I, I, but I met a fellow there who had so struggled with the sins of his mind that he had decided that the scriptures that say, if your eye offends you, pluck it out, he just took both of his thumbs and jammed his sight away. And so he was blinded, completely, figuratively 
and literally blinded by sin. You see, the fact of the matter is, the paralytic or those things that are outside of our normal, like someone that stays in their home all the time or someone that plucks their own eyes out, these are easily seen. The man that cannot walk, that can be easily seen. But the brokenhearted, the fragmented spirit, these are often unseen. Most of our paralysis is internal. It doesn't come out, and we need a healing. And God's healing is of the seen and of the unseen. And we need a healing. We all do. Ambrose, a thousand years ago, wrote, the ministry of forgiveness is not the exercise of an independent power or right, but points to God's own saving work. Sin paralyzes. God releases God pours forgiveness on us. We need not languish in spiritual infection. One of my favorite lines came from Summer Games a few years ago, and I apologize. One of you is going to say, I said that to you, Pastor Mike, but come on, I'm gray-haired. I just wrote it on the margins of my Bible. And here's what one of your students said. I love this. God's forgiveness is so thorough that the new life you are given feels as if you've always been good. That's incredible. You are so forgiven that God helps you not only be forgiven, but forget your sin and think that you were always his child and that you were always beloved and that you were always doing the right things. These are the most freeing words of the world in the world. You know this to be true. The most freeing words in the world are you are forgiven. This is what Jesus says to the man with his mat. Your sins are forgiven. Pick it up and go. Our United Methodist um, communion service ends with the words, uh, the pastor saying or the leader saying to the congregation, in the name of Christ, your sins are forgiven. And the congregation says back to him or her, in the name of Jesus, your sins are forgiven. Now, forgiveness, I know, can cause controversy. It did in Capernaum. It does in our world today. You remember in 2015 when the Emmanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church in, in uh, uh, South Carolina was shot up by yet another racist. And you know what the church did that very week? They got together and had a prayer service to forgive them. And do you know what the media did with that? They said, why would they possibly forgive them, him? How could you ever forgive someone from killing your mother after being at a Bible study or killing your father after being at a Bible study or killing your brother after being at a Bible study? Because that's what our Lord does. He forgives, so we forgive. What a great controversy that was for those in the media then. In the house at Capernaum, word got around. Capernaum was a small village, about the size of our parking lots and the building. It's not very big. You can walk it end to end in, in a minute or two. But word got around that Jesus was there and that a house was kind of being destroyed and that a man, Jesus, was bestowing forgiveness on another man. And both of those things were controversial. And so the question as we head towards blessing our last group of seniors are, are these. Does the depth of your faith cause controversy for anybody? Would you tear through somebody else's roof to get to Jesus? I don't know how many of you looked up right now. Take a look at the faith of the paralyzed man's friends. Now, a house in Israel wouldn't have been very big, probably the size of a small holiday in motel room. So you get 18, 20 people, and the room's pretty full. 
But because of the heat of the day, most homes in Israel at that time, and yet still today, had small stairways up the side that you could go on the roof, and at night it would be cooler. Now, the roofs were simply made of mud and thatch, and of course there would be uh, underlying uh, beams to hold it all up. And these four men, because they couldn't get through the crowd to Jesus, they decided to go up on the roof, and they start tearing the roof up. I mean, their behavior is very disruptive. Can you imagine Jesus down below? And he says, and of course, somebody would have said, um, you know, because here's my experience with dirt. It never goes up, right? It's coming down. It's very disruptive. Everybody's looking at it. And Jesus saw their faith. He saw all five of their faith. And so, again, the question is, does the depth of your faith cause controversy that everyone else can see? Where should it cause controversy? And why should it cause controversy? Would you approve someone tearing through your roof to get to Jesus? I mean, most of us just got our roofs back on, right? And I don't want mine torn back off. But we overlook the faith of the homeowner, because can't you see that? You know, one of his friends saying, Bill, they're taking your roof off. And it's all coming down into Bill's living room. Uh, Bill's not a Hebrew name, but I made that one up. But can you imagine that? And yet, he let it happen because he saw something in their faith that allowed him to watch them tear through his own roof. Does the depth of your faith cause such controversy that it seems weird to your friends and it's costly to you? I mean, letting your roof get torn off in our metro or anything that's parallel to that just seems weird. And so we go to this last blessing of seniors with this simple question. What do you do daily, physically, and spiritually with Jesus' command to get up and go. The power of Jesus says to a paralyzed man who cannot stand up, but he can, and he obeys the command. He says, pick up your, your sins are forgiven, pick up your mat and go. The very mat that carried him, the very proof of his sickness, now gives testimony to his being well. The bed of pain is now seen as the sign of healing. The man stands up, picks up his mat, and goes. And so the command to get up and go rolls downhill to us. What healings do you need from Jesus, and who are you supposed to bring to the Lord for spiritual or physical healing? In the name of Jesus Christ, I say to all you, if you are repentant and you come to him, you are forgiven. In the name of the Father and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.